You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. philosophy of René Descartes, a very interesting character, certainly in philosophy, and very important as well. Frank Lloyd Wright once described his architecture as being order out of chaos, and that seems like a really appropriate phrase to describe Descartes' philosophy, and it seems like that's exactly what he was trying to do, precisely because there was so much chaos going on in his life. Precisely chaos. The The world was plunged into chaos, the world of Descartes, the world of Europe. The... Uh, the Reformation was taking place, the Counter-Reformation. And then there were all kinds of changes in outlook about the way we understand the world. Galileo, the controversy of Galileo, who, who challenged the geocentric view of the world, that the Earth is the center of the universe, that was in everybody's mind. Uh, Newton was just beginning to investigate physics and challenge traditional ideas of physics. Um, Copernicus had already published, also challenging the geocentric worldview, and I'm sure someone like, like Descartes would say, if people were wrong for so many thousands of years about things like sunrise and sunset, what else could we be wrong about? Yeah, and he begins the meditations with that famous quote that several years have now elapsed since I discovered that a lot of stuff I learned in my youth was wrong. And he's got to be referring to, at least in part, the Copernican Revolution. And I imagine in pe for people in our day, it's almost impossible to imagine what that would be like to find that such a big part of your view of the world was shown to be totally wrong. Yeah, there's an echo of that in that old Simon and Garfunkel song. When I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, right? It's a wonder I can think at all. That's got to be what Descartes is uh, is feeling, and it's I think important to understand that to understand his philosophy because otherwise it seems so strange what he's doing, calling into question everything in his world. But as you say, I mean, who wouldn't call into question because of all the other uncertainty? I mean, you've got religious uncertainty you mentioned with the Reformation and then the Counter Reformation. You've got scientific uncertainty with Copernicus and Galileo. And then add on top of that, as if that wasn't enough, political uncertainty with the Thirty Years' War. Exactly. So if, if you can't be sure who's right in religion, and you can't be sure who's right in science, and you can't be sure who's right in politics, you got chaos. You got confusion. Exactly. And you might wonder, well, can we have certainty in any area of life. And that's exactly what Descartes is setting out to address exactly. in the meditations. Can exactly. we have certainty? And he, the whole school of rationalism is an attempt to make sense out of a very uncertain world. Now, rationalism is a response to the doubting of the information from the senses. If you can't rely on your sense information, what can you rely on? And you immediately go to your mind. Is there a mind that thinks? Of course. Can we rely on it? And Descartes wanted to affirm that we can. 
But there were other kinds of rationalists in Descartes' time, too. There were people like Leibniz, um, who insisted that, that there's a parallel world going on, matter and mind. There were people like um, Hobbes, who said there was only matter, and that mind's an illusion. But Descartes gives us this wonderful blend of mind and matter, and we call his approach to rationalism dualism. And this really set in motion a lot of philosophy after Descartes. Uh, some people say that Descartes was really um, responsible for a, for a significant turn in philosophy, uh, ushering in what we often refer to as modern philosophy. I had a very perceptive student one time observe that whereas a lot of philosophical writing prior to Descartes is very abstract and, and sort of academic, Descartes seems to be writing in first person. And I think that's partly deliberate of Descartes' method, showing that there's a different way of doing philosophy as opposed to Aquinas saying, the philosopher said this, the philosopher said yeah. that. Aqu uh, uh, Descartes says, I am going to doubt. I am going to try to discover whether there's certainty. And that represents, I think, a deliberate attempt on Descartes' part to show that there's a different way of doing philosophy that starts with, as you point out, the mind, but not just the mind in an abstract sense, my mind, because that's the only one I have access to, at least in Descartes' view. Right. When Aquinas wrote, he wrote as if he were doing lectures in the university and could easily write in the third person. Descartes was breaking new ground. He wanted to find out what he knew himself, he alone. And so he can write in the first person, I, I can doubt this, I can understand this. Yeah, and he doesn't call his uh, his book lectures on philosophy. They're meditations. Meditations. Uh, almost hearkening back to the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which were written for himself. Yes. And Descartes is at least in part writing for himself to yes. resolve these problems. He, of course, seems to be writing to a wider audience as well, but it's primarily a self-investigation. And I think that's kind of interesting that, that Descartes is showing that philosophy can be that kind of self-investigation as opposed to an abstract investigation. It's an investigation that anybody can take on for themselves, and Descartes believes come to the same results he comes to, strange though they might seem when he gets into doubting. And another area of confusion I think that many students have today centers about the word substance. Descartes uses the word substance, and people think it means something you can feel, touch, taste, some thing. Like we use the word controlled substance, that right. phrase. Um, it's something a dog can sniff out, I guess, in a drug search. But that's not what Descartes and the philosophers meant by substance, and we really should clear that up right away. The mind is a substance for Descartes, because substance in philosophy means that which stands under something, right. that which is the, the basis for understanding something. Even the word understand means to stand under. So substance is the same word as a hypothesis or, or a hypostasis. Hypo means under, stasis means stand. It stands under. It's the very heart, the essence of something. So the mind is a substance in that sense. 
Yeah, and you're right. This does cause a lot of confusion for people because if you try to explain it in our ordinary sense of the word substance, what you end up trying to make sense out of is a non-physical substance, right. which sounds totally contradictory. I mean, isn't substance supposed to be physical? And so how can Descartes say that the mind is a substance? But he can say it because he means substance in the sense that you explained it, not substance in the sense of, well, here's something I can put my hand on and feel or taste or touch or see. Yeah. The mind is a substance whose essence is thought. That's a hard thing to get around. Matter is a substance, but its essence is to be extended so to, as to provide sense information. Right. Taking up space, Descartes says. Extension. Yes, taking up yeah, space. The exactly. essential nature of a physical substance. And to my knowledge, Descartes is not necessarily the first person to enunciate this doctrine but but the one who enunciates it so clear and so radically that it has changed philosophy ever since this notion of dualism being the explicit separation of these two substances right aristotle articulated a whole uh, philosophy about substance and it's essentially the same thing but descartes made it clear in fact descartes likes the phrase clear and distinct ideas and he certainly gave, gave them to us in abundance. And that's one of the reasons I think it's useful to read the meditations, because compared to some other works of philosophy, Descartes is clear and distinct in his enunciation of what he's trying to do. Uh, certainly if you compare it to uh, Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, oh. uh, Descartes is amazingly clear and very transparent, it seems to me, in what he's trying to do. He lays out the method right there for us, not only to show what he did, but to show that you could do the same thing as well. So when he says things like, uh, I'm going to ask myself the question of whether my senses have ever deceived me, well, you can imagine asking yourself exactly the same question and coming up with exactly the kind of examples that Descartes came up with. Yeah, my senses have deceived me. Certainly, we can, we can multiply examples of when our senses deceived us. The time we saw those wavy lines in a road and thought they were water, it was, actually, it was an optical illusion. But it's an interesting conclusion that Descartes draws that because they deceive me sometimes, he says, we should throw them out. And that strikes people as maybe throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But if you're looking for certainty, it makes perfect sense. Because if something is fooling you sometimes, then it by definition cannot be certain, which is exactly what Descartes is looking for, right? A sort of a high standard of knowledge that cannot be doubted in any sense of the word. But clearly the senses can be. So they can't be the source of the certainty. Yeah, if the senses can deceive us some of the time, why can't they deceive us all the time? I mean, Descartes is certainly not saying, is he, that the senses do in fact deceive us all the time. That's not what he, that's no, not what he means. No, but he says they just, we just can't trust completely and with certainty our sense knowledge. Right, and I, I think a lot of people confuse the, the Cartesian method of doubt with the claim that the senses are deceiving me all the time. Descartes says, I don't have to demonstrate when I doubt something that it's false, I just have to show that it's possible that it's not always true. So it's a slightly different standard of calling into question something. Descartes is not saying, my senses are in fact always deceiving me. But if you're looking for certainty and the senses deceive you sometimes, then you can't be certain about them. Sure. And of course, one uh, corollary of Descartes' method of doubt is skepticism. Descartes may have given rise to skepticism, and that's the, the belief that we can't trust any knowledge. But in any case, he sure 
gives us a step-by-step procedure and we can we can we can relate to him maybe better than any other philosopher because we do doubt we wonder did we really hear that <laughs> and there are all kinds of games um, optical illusion games that we can see forward to us and like jokes on on the internet or in psychology books do we see a, a young woman or an old woman do we see uh, black bays or two white bases. Yeah, the senses uh, are not always giving us uh, accurate information, mm-hmm. and uh, so certainly uh, we can relate to uh, to Descartes' own experience because it's our own experience. But then Descartes does something that seems to violate many people's own experience because he takes it one step further and he says, "Okay, well the senses deceive me sometimes." That doesn't mean I can be fooled by the obvious fact that I'm awake right now and talking to you. How in the world could that be doubted? I mean, yeah, I might be wrong about the color of your shirt. That could fool me. But how could I doubt the fact that I'm here talking to you awake and alert? I mean, I'm, I'm not having a dream, right? I mean, this is real. Exactly. And Descartes had a lot to say about dreams. He, he wondered, when we dream... Where does that knowledge come from? It's independent of our senses. And if we dream that two and three equal five, we know that's true. Do we get that from our senses? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the triangles in my dreams always have three sides, just Mm -hmm. like they do in real life. So dreaming has an interesting function in Descartes' philosophy because it leads me to question the truth of sense experience. I mean, I might actually be dreaming this, says Descartes. Because I've had these kind of vivid dreams before. I mean, he there's this interesting passage in the meditations where he says, there's no way I can be anything but certain about the fact that I'm sitting here by the fire in my dressing gown writing. And then he says, wait a minute, I've, I've had a dream of this before. And so how do I know I'm not dreaming that right now? But as you point out, even in a dream, two and three still equals five. A triangle still have three sides, and that knowledge has to come from somewhere. So... Obviously, it's not coming from sense experience. And we can never forget that, that Descartes was a mathematician. Right. A brilliant mathematician. He delved into analytical geometry. He knew geometry cold. He knew Euclidean geometry. Yeah, he, he invented Cartesian coordinates. Cartesian I don't coordinates, suppose right. he called them Cartesian coordinates. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he did invent that, that, that he system. He couldn't have called it Euclidean geometry either because yeah, exactly. there was only one kind of geometry. Right. But he knew about axioms. And what's an axiom? It's a self-evident truth. It doesn't need to be proven. It doesn't even need the senses. So that might be where the foundation of certainty is for Descartes in mathematics. And it's not surprising that he would look to that as sure. the foundation. I mean, who can doubt an axiom as being true? What, one, of, one of the axioms in geometry is that um, two points can be joined together by a straight line. Who can doubt that? Yeah, and that might be... Exactly That's where certainty right. is. Yeah. Right angles are congruent. Unless, Unless there's a reason for doubting mathematics. And there might just be in Descartes' philosophy.
I know a lot of people are probably asking themselves the question, how in the world can mathematics be doubted? I mean, especially given everything you said before the break about right angles are always 90 degrees, triangles always have three sides, two and three is always five. Who in the right mind could come up with any reason for doubting that? Unless we were being deceived by something or someone. Yeah, interesting idea. There might be a very powerful being who is deceiving us. And that would be an evil being, would it not? Oh, certainly. It would have to be an evil being because, as Descartes says, I mean, God, we, we, all, we always think of as omnipotent and omnibenevolent, right? All good yes. and all powerful. But because we have that belief, Descartes seems to think that it's not entirely implausible that there could be a very powerful being who is, instead of being all good, evil. And in Descartes' time, there was such a being or beings. The world was inhabited with them. It was not out of the ordinary to think that these beings or being exerted an influence of deception and trickery. So, so if a being is powerful enough to do that, they could certainly deceive us about two and three being five. Maybe two and three is really seven, but we're being deceived by this very powerful being into thinking that it's different. And so how can you be certain about mathematics then? Well, we would have no defense against such a deception, such a being that deceives us, unless there were a guarantee out there. And that would have to be some being more powerful than a deceiver. So at some point in time, we're going to have to demonstrate that there is such a being, aren't we? At least Descartes is thinking to himself, probably. At some point in time, I'm going to have to demonstrate that this exists. And since we can't use our senses, we have to use our reason to conclude that none of our knowledge would be reliable unless we were protected from deception by a being that was all-powerful and benevolent, omnibenevolent, as you say, that wouldn't permit us to be deceived. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a proof of the existence of God is coming our way. Uh, that's just exactly what it is. But, but before we do that, we, we have to answer the question of whether anything can be certain at all, even in this early stage. And Descartes seems to confess at the end of Meditation 1, there might not be anything that's certain. It seems pretty bleak at this point. In fact, at the end of Meditation 1, he gives this long list of things that he is now doubting because his senses have deceived him, uh, he might be dreaming, and this evil demon is deceiving him. And so there's all these things that can be called into question, leading us to conclude perhaps nothing can be certain. But then in the beginning of Meditation 2, he has an interesting insight about what might be really certain. Sure, he reflects on his activity. As a doubter of sense impressions and knowledge, as suspicious of being deceived, even in dreams. But what he can't doubt any longer is that he is doubting. Yeah, that's an interesting insight, sort of ironic, but kind of gets back to something we talked about earlier, that is Descartes' meditations are written in first person, and so it's not surprising that he comes to the conclusion that that person himself is the certainty. Sure. And if I am being deceived, well, I have to exist in order to be deceived, don't I? That's exactly right. And I can't doubt that. I mean, if I say I doubt that my sense experience is giving me good knowledge, that's reasonable to conclude. But if I say I doubt I exist, 
That's just nonsense. That's Absolutely. contradictory. He could doubt the existence of every person, even people close to him. But he couldn't doubt that he's doubting their existence. So he must exist. The I must exist. The I who doubts. And so this, this gives rise to what has to be the most famous soundbite in all of philosophy. Right? I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And that's, that's where it starts with Descartes. The certainty lies inside me, with myself. And from that center of certitude that I exist, he can start to begin reconstructing a reliable world. And uh, it's not an easy task. He's got a lot uh, ahead of him. But at least he has demonstrated that there is a foundation. Uh, he, he says at one point in the meditations, all I really need is exactly what Archimedes needed to move the world. One immovable point. And now he's got it. And so he's feeling pretty confident that he can uh, that he can complete the task because he's got that one starting point, that fundamental certainty it's that the, everything else can be built upon. Right, it's the lever of Archimedes. Just like a geometer to come up with exactly. that kind of <laughs> fundamental axiom because that's what geometry does, right? You yes. Just give me a fundamental axiom and I can give you the rest of geometry. And that's what Descartes is saying about philosophy. Give me one certainty and I can give you the rest of metaphysics and epistemology. That's right. He has a starting point. So he can rely on the axioms, and he can conclude that a power of thought in this thinking being that he knows he is, is intuition. He can intuit basic truths, like the axioms of geometry. And Descartes, uh, in terms of his self-knowledge, comes to a kind of an interesting conclusion in the second meditation that has, in some sense, plagued philosophy ever since because he asks himself a very simple question now that I know I exist what am I and he, he actually says at one point if you'd asked me this before I started meditating I would have said well I'm a human being right I'm a man a rational animal but that definition won't do now because it's Not too vague it's, it's remember our, our discussion about substance just right exactly ago. what is his substance what is his essence his essence, that which makes him what he is, is a res cogitans, a thinking thing, a thinking being. That is the essence of his humanity. And that's his definition of, uh, of what the I is. It's not a very romantic notion, a thinking thing, but that's the irreducible essence, as you say, of, of what we are. I mean, our essence is to think. It's certainly not to take up space, which comes later with the idea of extended substance. Mm -hmm. I mean, a thinking being does not have to occupy space in order to think, but thinking is its own activity, maybe we could say, or Descartes uses the stronger word, substance. And many people since Descartes have criticized him for reducing the complexity of whatever humanity means to this bare bones notion of a thinking substance. Yeah, that was a criticism that uh, certainly has plagued Descartes ever since. And even contemporaries of Descartes criticize him about this notion that you mentioned of, of oversimplifying everything to this notion of thinking. Descartes might respond to that by saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not oversimplifying. I recognize thinking is a fairly involved process. He says in the second meditation 
look at all the things that thinking involves. Thinking involves doubting, understanding, conceiving, affirming, denying, willing, refusing, imagining, and even perceiving. And so it's, there's a lot built into that one small phrase, a, a thinking thing. Yeah, he did try to defend himself from such criticism, and he used that wonderful image of wax, which you might want to expand upon. Yeah, it, uh, when he talks about this in the, the second meditation, he enumerates all these things involved in thinking, and he includes deliberately the notion of perception, and he recognizes instantly in the next paragraph that this might strike people as very, very strange, because what did we do in the first meditation? We doubted sense experience, so why are we calling perception a type of thinking? And he says, well, if you stop and think about this, perception is really a part of thinking precisely because perception in and of itself doesn't give us any useful knowledge. It's what the mind does with those perceptions. And he uses a very famous example, what has come to be a famous example to illustrate this. He says, take a piece of wax, and if you inspect it, you recognize it has a lot of different attributes. It has a certain taste, a smell, uh, uh, texture, hardness. If you tap on it, it actually makes a certain sound. But then if you put it close to the fire, what happens to the wax? Well, it starts to change, and all the attributes change. And then you're left wondering, well, is it the same piece of wax? Now, you don't have to think long about the answer to that. Obviously, it's the same piece of wax, but this raises an interesting point. If it's the same piece of wax as before, how do you know it's the same piece of wax? You can't be getting that knowledge from sense experience because all your senses have changed. And Descartes uses that to prove that perception is a part of thinking. It's not the senses that are giving us the information. It's the thought process involved in making sense out of the perceptions. And then he will reaffirm, I am a thinking thing. I'm a thinking being. res cogitans. Which, again, leaves Descartes open to the criticism of it's been called the ghost in the machine. Is that what a human being is? A ghost inside a machine? Because what he's saying is essentially what I am is a mind, not a body. Right. I'm a mind in a body. The body is an extension of my mind. Yes. It's not me. Certainly. Certainly I'm not a body because I can doubt the existence of my body. He does so in the first meditation. He explicitly points out, I'm going to doubt that I have hands and feet and arms and all the rest of it. So obviously who I am is not essentially that body, but that creates a big problem that we're probably going to have to deal with in another broadcast entirely, the so-called mind-body problem. Uh, how in the world do you take these two substances that Descartes points out are separate and explain how they interact? Because it seems like, to my experience, probably to most people's experience, I can think of mind and body, but they seem to be operating as a seamless unit. If they're two different substances... How do they interact? That's the problem. And, and it may not just be us who will be able to deal with it in the next coming broadcasts, but I think society has been dealing with that dichotomy ever since. Certainly. This is one of the legacies of Descartes. And I suspect any good philosopher leaves as their primary legacy not a solution to a problem, but a problem for somebody else to think about. And by that standard, Descartes has certainly been a, a very important uh, philosopher in, in terms of influence uh, and in one respect it seems like Descartes had the effect of reawakening philosophy it had kind of been in a state of dormancy since Aristotle 
And Descartes sort of saw it as his mission to reawaken philosophy. Ironic when you think about it, because Descartes himself never liked to get up before noon. <laughs> sure. But Descartes' philosophy, his writings, um, kind of put philosophy at a crossroads. There are only two ways to go with Descartes. If he has divided us into minds and bodies, to mind and matter, then which path do you choose? Can you have both? That's right, and you almost have to choose. Have it's to choose hard to imagine them. how you can have both in Descartes' world. That's right. You have to choose between mind and matter. And if you choose mind, then that takes us down the road of ideas. The mind is full of ideas, so we, it takes us to idealism. And if you choose matter, the body, that takes us down the road to materialism. And both of them are well represented in philosophy today. Right, and of course many people have the intuition that we ought to be able to choose both and combine them, except that then you have to solve Descartes' central problem. And it's not as easy as it sounds. You can't simply just say, well, of course the mind and body work together. Well, but what you have to do is explain how they work together. And Descartes has an interesting solution that might be inadequate, which we'll probably take a look at next time. Uh, but given that Descartes' solution itself is inadequate, you're still left with the question, how in the world do these two work together? Sure, and how do they talk together? How do they interact? We're all bemused after the September 11, 2001 tragedy about the New York Fire Department, New York Police Department. They had two-way radios, but they were on different frequencies and they couldn't talk to each other. Well, how much more fundamental is the mind-body problem? Well, the mind can't talk to the body and the body can't talk to the mind. And if it does, if they do, how do they? Right. And so that's the question we'll take on next time. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy.